Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Welcome back. We are once again discussing the uh, ABF series, Connecting to Our Core, uh, with our very own Pastor Phelps, who's joined us again. I'm also joined by Matt Barfield. Hello. And this week we are looking at scripture-saturated and Savior-centered preaching. And so this is an important element of our DNA, which, in case you forgot, stands for... What does it stand for again, Pastor? Distinctively non-negotiable attribute. Distinctively non-negotiable attributes. We're going to get that down before we're done. That's right. <laughs> it's the core of, of who we are and of what, what matters. These are the things that we don't cut away. These are the things that really matter. And so this week we're talking about preaching. You started off with a uh, some lengthy quotations from someone named Alan Wolf, who I'd never heard of before. He wrote an important book, The Transformation of American Religion. Uh, one of the interesting things that is uh, mentioned about this is that this is actually from the perspective of an unbeliever. And so uh says here in the notes, Alan Wolf is a self-avowed unsaved man who says, watching sermons reduced to PowerPoint presentations or listening to one easily forgettable praise song after another makes one long for an evangelical willing to stand up Luther-like and proclaim his opposition to the latest survey of evangelical taste. Um, I find that really interesting, Pastor. This is an unsaved person. At another point, he said, talk of hell, damnation, and even sin has been replaced by non-judgmental language of understanding and empathy. Gone are the arguments over doctrine and theology. What do you think it is uh, in the current evangelical scene that's making you know even an unbeliever look at this and say, whoa, whoa, whoa time out, something's not right here? So Alan Wolf was a sociologist with the University of Chicago. He also wrote a really good book called The Closing of the American Mind. He was an unbeliever, but Alan Wolf was looking at the culture and realizing what many people have realized round about him, that uh, we are living in a culture that is uh, very graphically oriented, very sensually oriented. Uh, our input to the brain comes through pictures, and we're moving away from linear thought, away from textual thought. And so his response to that was uh, critical in looking at evangelical churches and seeing how much of evangelicalism has been embedded with uh, what you would have to say is uh, a sensual worship service where a message with solid content and doctrinal understanding uh, would uh, be disavowed by many and certainly not attractive to those who would prefer to see a video clip and have a sensual experience when coming to church. There are those who are lost who realize that living by one's emotions is living in a pattern that is going to bring great destruction, and that's where uh, Wolf would have been. Hmm. It seems like as I travel around and, and, and see different cultures and different things, it's awesome to see God work around the world. But as I come back, I, I guess I'm always faced with the reality of how much God's blessed us here. So you talk about le- leaving linear thought and those, those kinds of issues of deep thought or contemplative thought about the Word of God and what it means and how we apply it. Uh, we've been blessed with that in this country uh, and so I think as you're talking about this, it seems like this secular author goes, hey, we're, we're leaving some really good things that we have. It's, it's, it's hard to build something. It's hard to make something. And here in America, we've been given some pretty great things that we should contemplate, think about, and then use, put to good use. So the Reformation was focused on linear thought. In fact, Martin Luther preached a two-hour sermon under the title, Let the Children Read. And so there was a great deal of focus on uh, taking away the literate and taking away the clericae and putting in place during the Reformation the ability for people to read. And you'll remember the statement that Tyndale made that he's writing a text in the English version of the Bible that the plowboy can Mm -hmm. read and understand. So remember, under the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholics, what they did was they had the literate. That's the laity. 
and they had the clerici. That's the clergy. And the two uh, were poles apart when it came to understanding, and that's why we had dark ages. So what did the Roman Catholic worship, what was it comprised of? It was comprised of the sensual. Uh, Come and see, this day we're going to open a particular curtain over the altar, and you're going to be able to see the ascension uh, picture graphically portrayed in a beautiful piece of art. Uh, Come and smell, Uh, we're going to light a special incense on this particular day that we're rejoicing in Pentecost, or come and taste uh, perhaps, or come and hear. And so uh, the swelling of choruses or even the discordant tones of the, the chants. Uh, and Luther and the Reformers, uh, Calvin and, and as well, would have said, no, no, no. We want people to be able to understand God's Word. And so word-focused worship is the Reformation. The Renaissance was going on at the same time, right? So the Renaissance was all about pictures and all about uh, the graphic and all about the sensual. In fact, when Luther visited the Vatican uh, during the time of the Reformation, he was so astounded uh, by the disgraceful, uh, overzealous uh, focus on the human body. Uh, he was actually being served in the Vatican by those who were partially nude and uh, was just totally put off uh, by the over-focus on the, the sensual. And only in recent years, uh, people would say with uh, migration patterns, over the last 100, 150 years, America has been radically influenced by those whose roots are back in the Renaissance more than the Reformation. And now today we're seeing it played out. I'm going a little long on this answer, but we see it played out in very sensually oriented worship services, whether it be the banging of the drums or the lifting of the hands or, uh, you know, a sight and sound show, including a smoke on the platform. Uh, this is a very sensual time and an inflammation of that. And it's very against what really was the foundation, not only of America, but the foundations of the Reformation and Western thought. Anytime I see a, um, a great athlete who really achieved the pinnacle of the Olympics or something like that, you see them 20 or 30 or 40 years later, sometimes you think, what happened to that guy? I mean, he really went downhill. He was at the pinnacle. Um, but it's, it's hard work to maintain something wonderful. And I guess from what I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, there's a lot of reasons or a lot of attacks on on what we've been given and this core, this great DNA that's here for us to utilize. But maybe the easiest reason or maybe the most obvious reason that people move away from this is we get lazy. Is that what you think? I think think? very much so. And and I think people don't recognize the danger of that laziness. So uh, there are those who would be willing to say, uh, you understand that just before the Nazi crisis in Germany, the, the best sight and sound show you could ever go to would be anything that the Nazis would use in their party spirit. You think about the marches and the flags and the colors and the pageantry and the planes. It, it was a show. And, and, the, and the, the speeches, if people go back and when they go back and look at Hitler's speeches, very little content, a whole lot of rant and very little content. And so today, even in churches, there are those who are minimalizing uh, the doctrinal foundations in the Word of God that are necessary to feed the soul and maximizing uh, the... Uh, the desire for an effect. And typically it shows up first in the music, but it also can show up in the dumbing down uh, from the pulpit and the lifting up of sight and spectacle. It kind of reminds me um, of a, a book that I uh, read once, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. He kind of talks about some of these similar themes, uh, this idea that you know in America we're moving from a text-based way of thinking as a culture 
to an image-based and to, he would use the term decontextualize. In other words, everything's just real quick uh, sound bites. And he was actually kind of going after the news uh, of his day and the television and the way that, you know, you'll pay attention to something for 15, you know, 10 minutes and then it's on to something else. And then, you know, this story is only going to last a minute and 36 seconds. And it's kind of funny looking back on that now because now that's only been accelerated by the internet and by social media and Twitter and the blog post and that, you know, he his point and others have picked up on this as well, that it changes the way we think. And we think now in shorter bites and long drawn out text-based linear thinking is becoming harder for people. And so I wonder too, if some of this is a cultural shift that's happening in the church, uh, at least in some sectors, rather than standing up to this and saying, no, we're going to stay with the longer, deeper, doctrinally based messages is kind of caving to the culture and saying, well, if that's if that's what will keep people, that's what will keep people. And I think, yes, I think you're exactly right, Ben, but I think there's also balance that we need to uh, consider. So we could go over balance and say, okay, well, if that's what the culture is going to do, we're going to preach for 90 minutes and there will be no <laughs> illustrations. Okay? But Silence. Then, yeah. But then what we realize is the Lord was a master at capturing the people's thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, he inductively preached, behold, the, the flowers, they're not weaving and spinning, but no one, even Solomon, has ever been arrayed in such glory. Look at the birds. So he, he took the common pictures and brought it to the, to the point, and you'll see that illustrated in the preaching of the apostles and Stephen in the book of Acts. You know, you look at Stephen's message that got him killed. Basically, it's a history of Israel, and he's moving through things that he had to develop in his heart, that he had to know by way of factual basis, but he comes to the conclusion that the fathers that are there before him now are just as guilty as the ones that have gone before, and they have been the, the reason for the crucifixion of Christ and ultimately finds himself uh, being killed because of it. But he was drawing them in by their own history. So, uh, again, I want to go back and say I think that we are living in a culture where soundbite and sensationalism is what sells. Mm-hmm. But we need to to remember we also have a responsibility to capture people's minds. And so I'm not going to be averse to using an illustration, but we're going to be, and this is some, somewhat subjective, we're going to be careful to say if if we're planning just to titillate the emotions and, and uh, get a feeling from the service rather than a focus on God, then we failed to really understand the core of what worship is. It's recognizing the worth of our God and showing that we value him in our expressions and in our thoughts. We're worshiping him in spirit and in truth. We're engaged and we're focused on his word. We're going to find the culture at different points. People are at different points in their lives. I thought it was a neat Sunday to have such a great testimony time from the youth group coming back from camp. Here are these you know, kids that have been growing up in the church, and some of them uh, giving this testimony. That's, that was awesome. And then in the morning service, we had uh, the mother of one of our men from Good News who was able to come and see her son in choir and say, oh, I'm so proud of him. So mm-hmm. different life points, different experiences, different backgrounds, but moving the same direction, moving towards what you're describing here. Um, it's, it's to me, I heard one guy say, uh, one preacher say, it's not only where you stand, it's which direction you're headed from that stand. And what I hear you saying here is we might find the culture or the people that we're ministering to in, in a certain spot, but we're moving them towards a focus and a devotion to God and his word. And I think we need to, to realize often we become very myopic when we discuss these themes of worship. But this is a global phenomenon. And I know, Matt, that would really uh, wind your clock. But you go around the world, and around the world you'll find that you can divide worship services 
between those who are tactile and emotional and, and seeking a buzz out of the service, if you will, and then those who are really deeply considering God's Word and allowing God's Word through His Spirit to make an impact on their lives and reflecting that uh, through natural songs of praise and devotion and prayer to God. Uh, the world divides that way, and it's, it's not new. Uh, Moses is coming down from the mountain, and he's going to destroy the tablets that are in his hands because he hears a noise of war in the camp. That's what they, they thought. Well, that's what it was suggested to him. Right. And he knows it's not. It was a sensual worship service yeah. that Aaron was conducting. And you find in Daniel chapter 3, on the plains of Dura, uh, it was the music that was going to cue up everybody to fall on their face. And they go through the, the list of the dulcimer and the cymbal and all these different musical instrumentations. There's a sound of worship that de- the devil has become very adept at patterning. And God's people need to be aware of that and say that can creep into even evangelical churches. They may have the truth of the gospel. Aaron had the truth. He was worshiping Jehovah, but he was worshiping the right God the wrong way. That's happening, I believe, in evangelical churches, and I think it's frightening. And we need to be reminded that in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul said that from your own midst will wolves rise up. Uh, And Peter says the same thing. Where, Where do the false teachers come from? They come not from the outside threatening. They come from the inside, often unawares. I think it was cool you mentioned falling down on their faces as that emotional thing goes over them. Um, but First Corinthians 14 says, If all prophesy and there come in one that believeth not or one unlearned, he's convinced of all, he's judged of all. Verse 25, And thus the secrets of his heart may manifest, and so falling down on his face he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. That's a response to preaching the word. Yes, and it's very word-centered there. The Apostle Paul says in that passage, which is better to speak one word in an unknown tongue? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 10,000 words in an unknown tongue or one, one word that's recognized. And understanding. So, is what, understanding, right. it's, and it's all word-based. Right, that's awesome. I think one of the things that I find interesting in this whole conversation is, you know, I think back to, you know, the, the Middle Ages, the time of, you know, the, the Catholic dominance, and I think of it, and I think of those services, and I think, boy, that sounds so boring. Um, and yet hearing some of this, you know, when you think about it, for them, it really was a very emotional uh, experience. And, you know, you have the beautiful uh, Gothic cathedrals and the stained glass and the music. And um, we were, you know, I, I went to, um, I visited an Orthodox church at one point. They were building one and we went in and um, I was actually interning at Colonial a few years back. And we just went in to see if we could look around and I mean, they've got they've got beautiful murals up there that are millions of dollars, and we we talked to um, the the clergy that was running it, and he made he made the comment. He said, "Yeah, when you come in, you know, you you light the incense, and so you know you can smell it, and you'll hear the chants, and you'll see the all the artwork, and you know you'll be able to you know you're you're physically touch." He said, "So we've got four of the five senses involved, and it it kind of clicked like this is this is being catered to people in a very different way." than, you know, the contemporary worship model. But it's the same underlying thing where we're trying to appeal to people and give them this emotional, you know, sensual in the sense of engaging the senses ex- worship experience rather than a focus on here's what God's Word says and let's respond to the truth that we find in it in word, in, in prayer, and in song. In the, uh, middle, in the middle East where there's, we have a lot of Orthodox churches, um, Coptics and different things, also have Islam, and both of those groups tend to persecute believers, <laughs> believe it or not. Mm. And so we would meet in a, a small apartment, and the song service, we do sing, we sing, we're commanded the scriptures to sing, but the doors are closed, the windows are down. Hmm. Uh, we're trying not to make a loud noise because the people around us might complain, tell us to tell the police, you know, we're not technically a, supposed to be a church meeting there. But the time of the word 
was long and intense, and and that's what everybody was really excited about. And I think you know when you think about persecuted churches, it, it, it's so important that they have the word because that is the differentiator. And that's what we see the Apostle Paul doing in the Book of Acts. The Bible tells us that mm. when he was preaching, he went long into the uh, yeah. into the night. Right. I mean, and Eutychus is falling out dying. the window. <laughs> and, uh, so it, it was not a brief, um, you know, quick devotional. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I found interesting about this lesson, you make this comment uh, in the notes. You say preaching is an essential element of the worship of the New Testament church. And I know a lot of people, and I've uh, been called out on occasion for uh, doing this as well, a lot of people in their minds will distinguish between the worship service and the preaching time. And you've been um, adamant that, that those are one and the same. Can you help walk us through why it is that you consider preaching an element of worship um, in the New Testament church? Well, when you look at the New Testament church, uh, the mandates that are given to it, um, the Apostle Paul writes to a pastor by the name of Timothy who's serving in Ephesus, and he's, he's telling Timothy, preach the word. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, he says, give attendance to the reading of the word and to the preaching of the word. Uh, to the application, the exhortation, he says there in four, four and verse thirteen. So the elements that are respons- that he's responsible for there in Ephesus was he's he's to read the word aloud, he's to uh, share the content, and then he's to make the application. That's what you see Nehemiah doing in Nehemiah chapter eight. So back to when we see by example what the New Testament church was doing, uh, like we just referenced, even somebody falling out of the window on the Lord's day because he was preaching long into the night. We see what they were doing. We hear the expressions or the exhortations that are frequently given to be preaching the word. It, it's not then just a matter of, well, I don't want to go to a preaching service. It's a matter of obedience. Uh, we preach the word in season, out of season. We reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. So we have the examples of the services that are actually in the uh, God's word re- reflected, and we have the expressions that tell us this is an essential part of worship. So we're living in a day today that, uh, you know, people talk about worship leaders. Well, get your concordance out and look through the New Testament. And you're not <laughs> going to find a worship leader in the New Testament, okay? If you were to find a leader who's uh, involved in the leadership of the worship, I'm sure you would find a pastor, uh, not just somebody who's adept on the guitar. Uh, so we have um, basically seen a de-evolution of worship services to now people say worship. Well, that's, you know, that's the music and that's um, maybe the dance team coming out, and maybe we're going to have a little bit of, you know, some kind of a, um, I don't know, a, a drama or a video clip, and then the pastor's going to preach. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the worship, the, the elements of worship in the New Testament are preaching and prayer and singing and giving and communion. Those are the elements of worship. So when we're having a worship service, we're looking for those varied elements. And there are those who would make a strong point, well, if you believe that the communion is uh, an element of worship, why don't you do it every week? Mm-hmm. And you know what? That's that's a good conversation, and maybe not fit for today. I'll let you. <laughs> I'll let you do that one, Ben. When you when you teach, because uh, you're going to be taking this class on the 18th of July. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do. Uh, we would be very disobedient if we did not uh, come to the Lord's table. Uh, everybody recognizes that, that we mm-hmm. do this in remembrance of, of Him, and some would say it needs to be done weekly. Well, then others could argue, well, it needs to be done daily because they uh, met together daily from house to house, and they were involved in the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of the bread. So uh, I think that there are measures of uh, timing on that, uh, but we don't want to separate 
uh, okay, the prayer time, the music time, that's our worship time. And mm-hmm. then pastor preaches. No, no, no. Preaching is part of the worship time. Hmm. That takes a lot of work and coordination and thought aforetime to make it all. And it's an essential together. part. You know, sure. I mentioned in, in the uh, class together that there's a reason why when you come into a Baptist church, the pulpit's in the center. That's a very mm-hmm. unusual thing. In most, uh, you know, Orthodox churches, the altar's in the center. Right. And they call it a split chancel. They may have a pulpit on each side, uh, one for leading the singing and one for li- for giving the devotional. But uh, we are those who reflect the Reformation in this. The architecture of the church is centered on the pulpit. Hmm. As we look at um, the exhortation to preach as the church worships, you mentioned that there's the three exhortations, the reading, um, uh, exhortation, and doctrine, and you I'll put it this way, the Bible is to be read aloud, and then they're supposed to be teaching, which would line up with the doctrine, and then they're supposed to be exhortation, uh, which would line up with application. Um, as you as you think through uh, those three elements, you know, most churches, there's, you know, you're going to read the Bible when you're preaching it, um, and then there's this uh, dual focus on teaching and application. I thought it was interesting what you said here. Some preachers specialize in scuba preaching. They go down deep, they stay down long, and they come up dry. Uh, there's really there's no exhortation that goes along with that, no, no application. And then some preachers specialize in skyscraper sermons. They place one story upon another. In the end, they come to no point. Uh, expository preaching exposes the spirit-given meaning of the text, giving the meaning of the context, the words, and the history in order to bring forward the instruction that changes lives. As you're uh, preaching week in and week out, how do you uh, seek to strive that balance between the doctrine and the application? So I want to make sure that I'm textually based. Is this what this passage says? What's the intent of this passage? Um, there's there's one intent and many applications of that intent, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, if we're focused on making sure that we're making the Word of God come alive in the minds of God's hearers, whether it's explaining the words, explaining the context, uh, explaining the history, but we, we get the Word um, into their minds and then make the applications and Often the Spirit of God truly is going to make more applications than I ever would. Mm. But I think if I'm void of applications, then I'm not preaching, I'm just teaching. And and there's a difference between teaching and preaching. There are some people, give us more, we want more depth. And and you sometimes want to respond to the pastor, take what you've got and apply it now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not just a matter of head knowledge. The you know, Knowledge puffs up and knowledge brings pride. But the application of the knowledge uh, that brings humility. Uh, when we look in the in the Word of God as in a mirror and come away unchanged, well, we can come away with a whole lot of head knowledge. And I don't know if that's really answering your question, but really yeah. the focus needs to be, can I sincerely say I'm sharing the Word of God as it was written, as, as God's purpose was for God's people, and then am I, am I making application in the current culture in which we're living? And at that point, uh, driving for a decision to be made, that's preaching. Uh, reprove, rebuke, exhort. I said on Sunday, I was asked a couple of years ago by a young man, you know, Pastor Phelps, we really enjoy your preaching. You've got a lot of good content for us to consider, but do you need to have so much time for application? And and I said, well, do do me a favor. Do what I've done. Go to the book of Acts, look at the word exhort, and run that word exhort right through to Second uh, Timothy, where the Apostle Paul is going to say to Timothy, reprove, rebuke, exhort. And you're going to see that the word exhort in the New Testament means apply. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not making application, I'm not doing the work the Spirit of God has called uh, the preacher in the New Testament to, times to do. Well, both of those um, 
there's mistakes you have here, the scuba divers or the skyscrapers, they both fail in the application process, right? They both are are you know missing how to make this so the scuba diver would be represented by the person that gives you a lot of deep doctrine but makes no application and the skyscraper person would be one who's making story after story after story hoping to make an application but it has no foundation right in doctrine so you have to have a balance yeah sure one thing that matt has said that i've found to be really convicting and i've shared i know with our group on several occasions is he said you know i go all over the world and i see people who don't have near the Um, intellectual understanding of the Bible that probably the average member at Colonial who's been going for a long time, you know, they've come since they were a kid, maybe, um, you know, they've been here, say, 5, 10, 15 years, you know, and yet what they do have, they're taking it and they're going out and they're doing it. They're doing discipleship. And um, I found that to be really convicting because it's true. Sometimes, you know, we always, we always want, we always feel like we have to know more. We have to know more. And, you know, I, I know I feel that as I'm as I'm preaching, that, that a lot of people say, well, you know, you start talking about we need to have knowledge or we need to, you know, have a mature understanding. And I think a lot of people are like, well, I'm not really cut out for seminary. And it's like, well, well, no one said anything about seminary. Like, you have this. You have a lot of knowledge. You know, Paul says to the Romans, um, you know, I'm convinced of you that you're able to admonish one another. And he says that it's because they're filled with knowledge and with goodness, that they've got the moral integrity and the scriptural understanding to admonish, to to confront one another uh, biblically in love and humility. And I mentioned to our group at the time, I said, you realize that by the time Paul is writing this, it's possible that the church is 15 to 20 years old, um, uh, maybe, maybe 20 to 25. I said, there's probably some of you in the room who may be older than the church was at this point. I said, and nobody, they didn't have a New Testament. And so Paul's able to look at this group and say, you've got the knowledge that you need to be exhorting one another, admonishing one another. And uh, so often I feel that, I, I fear that some Christians kind of, st- they're like, well, I don't know if I really know enough or I need to know more. But it's kind of like what you said. No, you you know a lot more than you give yourself credit for. Do it. Um, go out there and, and live it out and, and apply it and, and share it. Um, and the key there is understanding the difference between knowledge and wisdom. So knowledge, the accumulation of facts, and wisdom is the outworking of those facts in, in daily living. Better to have few facts with lots of wisdom than lots of facts and no wisdom. You know, somebody said, you can uh, have so many degrees, they call you Fahrenheit <laughs> and not be hot for God. And that's really true. There are a lot of people who think, well, I know so much, and they're given to that. They're focused on all kinds of uh, details, whether essential or non-essential. But when it comes to the, the just the plain, simple truth of you need to come in out of the rain, they've never applied that mm-hmm. to their lives, and they're not full of wisdom. So, uh, you know, wisdom's available to all. And those who are uh, knowledge-focused uh, get puffed up and often can be a put-off to others. But, you know, wisdom cries in the street. She's available to all, according to the book of Proverbs. Mm-hmm. And so I've found some of the sincerest, sweetest, um, most uh, compelling Christian testimonies to be people who just with simple faith take what they know and live it out on Main Street, yeah. and it's just a blessing. Mm-hmm. And the right response is to make use of it. Like they're they're making use right. of whatever they have, whatever they've been taught from God's Word, and and God honors that. God works. God does things on their behalf and teaches them more and shows them more and and uses them more. That that's really as, as I go around and I look at some of these pastors who have less technical training in the word of God than some of our Sunday school yes. um, attenders. Um, but they're making use of it. And and that's true at any, that's, that's a good thing at any phase. As my kids came back from camp, uh, I'm, I'm listening to John you know, tell what God taught him. And I'm like, wow, he made good use of scripture in Amen. his life. And that, that impacted me. I was having something happen a couple of weeks ago 
And uh, I was trying to figure something out. I was talking out loud to my family. And Josiah said, well, Dad, remember the Word of God says this. And he's making hmm. use of this. And I don't even start with Ellie. I mean, I, I get a lot of good service from Ellie. <laughs> but, uh, but just, you know, to make use of what you know. And I think sometimes we get so used to bringing in and not making use of it. And that making that wise application of God's Word is so vital. Amen. All right, last question as we wrap things up here. Uh, you talk about our preaching should be Savior-centered, and you, I have a quote here from Brian Chappell's Christ-centered preaching. Now, I'm not sure if a chapel invented the phrase Christ-centered, but I know that when I was in seminary, that was something that was talked about a lot. Um, and I'm just curious, how do you try and incorporate that practically into your preaching? How do you make sure that your preaching is Christ-centered, especially when you're preaching in the Old Testament? I know uh, this isn't something that's new with chapel. I know this was a burden of Spurgeon and, and others as well, that that our preaching really be focused on Jesus Christ. So as you're preaching, for example, through the Old Testament or uh, maybe New Testament books that you know may not explicitly mention Jesus in that passage, although that's hard to do because he's everywhere, um, how do you make sure that your preaching is Christ-centered? Spurgeon, I think, said something about having a, a blood-red pathway from every passage to the cross, and especially on Sunday mornings when I know we have the most potential of having lost people there, I'm always going to get the elements of the gospel into the Sunday morning message, which would include the death of Christ as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of all mankind and his resurrection, and that you need to believe by faith in that. So you know, I do evaluate, especially Sunday morning again, for the lost who are coming, are they going to hear the gospel? But the greatest example of any principle in the Old Testament or New uh, that we want to see is the example of Christ. And so uh, someone said to me, I think it was Tom Farrell, that a lot of our evangelical uh, preaching has just boiled down to basically uh, Sunday school lessons with a, a nice little moral. Mm-hmm. And, and what we're missing there is, hey, we have a high priest who knows the feelings of our infirmities and all points tempted as we are yet without sin. There ought to be some way this passage can be drawn into a parallel in the life of Christ, be displayed, and Christ being our hope and our power and and looking forward to his coming. So uh, we may be teaching a good lesson on the family. The question ought to be, well, how does Christ compel us to have families that are more centered on faith? Um, Do we always um, win the victory in that? No, but we always should be asking the question, do we we lift up Christ? Mm. If he's lifted up, he'll draw all men, and it's about him drawing them not about us just presenting a good 30-minute message. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you, Pastor, uh, for joining us and for talking through this. I hope this has been helpful, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing everyone next week as we continue through connecting to our core here at Colonial. See you next time. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org or check us out on Facebook. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.